Hello, everyone. My name is Adele Budiansky, and I'm a neuroanesthesia fellow at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. On behalf of the Trainee Engagement Committee of SNAC, I will be presenting a summary of the narrative review article, Anesthesia and Cognitive Outcome in Elderly Patients, a Narrative Viewpoint. This excellent review article was written by Drs. Cottrell and Hardung from the State University of New York and published in the January 2020 issue of the Journal of Neurosurgical Anesthesiology. Their article provides an overview of the risk factors for postoperative cognitive dysfunction in elderly patients, possible mechanisms to explain the cognitive vulnerability of this population, and recommendations for care based on the currently available evidence. Before we begin, let us briefly define the cognitive outcomes that are discussed in this article. Postoperative delirium has previously been defined by DSM-5 criteria, including changes in mental status and attention, and is expected to occur up to one week postoperatively. Various definitions have been debated and discussed for postoperative cognitive dysfunction, but in general, it can be defined as a decline in cognitive function as measured by deterioration in performance in neuropsychiatric tests following surgery. Elderly patients, defined in this narrative review as 60 years of age or older, are more vulnerable to the neurotoxic effects of anesthesia due to poor cognitive reserves. A recent major study, the International Study of Postoperative Cognitive Dysfunction, found that 10% of patients 60 years or older experience postoperative cognitive dysfunction, and that in some patients, this persists into the three-month follow-up time. A 2008 study by Monk et al. found that 12.7% of elderly patients experienced cognitive dysfunction at three months after surgery. Importantly, studies such as the one by Monk et al. found that postoperative cognitive dysfunction is associated with increased long-term mortality. Risk factors for cognitive dysfunction in non-cardiac surgery are reviewed in detail in this article. Risk factors for early postoperative cognitive dysfunction that were identified include increasing age, lower education level, increased duration of anesthesia, needing a second operation, and developing a postoperative infection or respiratory complication. In addition to age and education level, independent risk factors for sustained postoperative cognitive dysfunction include ongoing cognitive decline at time of hospital discharge, as well as a history of stroke without neurological residual damage. The authors also provided an extensive review of postoperative delirium as a risk factor for cognitive dysfunction. Specifically, they described studies both in cardiac and non-cardiac surgical populations, which demonstrated not only a strong association between postoperative delirium and long-term cognitive impairment, but also dementia. As a specific example, the authors of a 2018 study identified a dose-response curve between delirium severity and the rate of cognitive decline over a three-year time period in surgical patients without pre-existing dementia. Postoperative cognitive dysfunction following cardiac surgery is also reviewed in detail. In a 2001 study, Newman et al. found that the rate of postoperative cognitive dysfunction 
post-coronary artery bypass surgery was as high as 53% at time of hospital discharge. Interestingly, they also found that the cognitive dysfunction persisted after surgery, with 24% of patients experiencing it six weeks later, but as much as 42% of patients experiencing cognitive dysfunction five years after surgery, suggesting a fluctuating course. Even more concerning is the fact that in another study, there was a strong association between postoperative cognitive dysfunction one year after coronary artery bypass surgery and dementia and death within seven to 10 years. There is also a substantial body of literature examining the role of on-pump versus off-pump bypass surgery in the development of postoperative cognitive dysfunction. Several studies listed in this review article, including the CABBAGE off or on-pump revascularization study, did not find a difference in the rate of postoperative cognitive dysfunction in patients undergoing off-pump compared to on-pump coronary bypass. However, the authors of this review article point out that there are some methodological issues with these studies. Furthermore, a large meta-analysis found that off-pump bypass patients with a 28% reduction in stroke compared to on-pump bypass, suggesting that neurocognitive outcomes should be better for off-pump bypass surgery. Indeed, Doctors Cottrell and Hartung then described in detail multiple studies that showed that patients performed better on neurocognitive tests or had lower rates of postoperative cognitive dysfunction following off-pump bypass surgery. It is likely that these differences in outcome are due to the significantly larger number of cerebral microemboli that occur during on-pump cardiac procedures. Next, the authors discuss possible mechanisms by which anesthetics may cause cognitive impairment. Certain anesthetics may predispose to cognitive impairment compared to others. For example, Zhang et al. found that desflurane was associated with greater cognitive decline one week after surgery compared to isoflurane or spinal anesthesia. Others showed that a propofol-based anesthetic is associated with less short-term cognitive decline and less delirium compared to volatile anesthetics in elderly patients. The authors of this review article suggest that there may be some relationship between anesthetics and pathophysiological mechanisms of neurodegenerative disorders. It is theorized that anesthetics may disinhibit the aggregation of amyloid beta monomers into oligomers, which may be neurotoxic and contribute to the pathology of Alzheimer's disease. To support this, a study by Ekinoff and others showed that there is an increase in a marker of Alzheimer's disease in cerebrospinal fluid in healthy patients who undergo anesthesia for surgery. Interestingly, the level of this marker rose above an established threshold for mild cognitive impairment within 48 hours of exposure to the anesthetic. Another study found this marker to be elevated six months after coronary bypass surgery. To add further evidence to this relationship, a large study comparing patients diagnosed with dementia to patients without dementia found that there's a higher incidence of exposure to anesthesia in the demented group. The final section of this thorough review article discusses potential factors that may reduce the risk of cognitive dysfunction after surgery. Of these, the most heavily discussed in this review is the depth of anesthesia during surgery. 
Brown et al. found that elderly patients who received light misguided sedation during the spinal anesthetic for hip surgery had a reduced one-year mortality compared to patients who received deep sedation. In other studies, light sedation during spinal anesthesia was also associated with less delirium in elderly patients. To add support to the argument that less anesthesia is better, the cognitive dysfunction after anesthesia trial found that there was a higher rate of delirium and post-operative cognitive dysfunction at three months post-op in elderly patients who had a median BIS of 36 during non-cardiac surgery compared to patients with a median BIS value of 56. Of course, the results of the ENGAGES trial, which did not find that EEG-guided anesthetic management results in decreased post-operative delirium, come to mind and are discussed in detail by the authors of this review. Given that in the ENGAGES trial, the time spent in EEG birth suppression was fivefold greater in patients who experienced delirium, the authors of this review article argue that the primary finding of the trial does not make sense. In the ENGAGES trial, the BIS-guided group spent more than half an hour of time with a BIS less than 40, even though it has been reported that a BIS of less than 40 is associated with adverse effects even after a five-minute time interval. This article's authors suggest that this means that the anesthetic in the engaged BIS group was not sufficiently light compared to the control group, meaning that cognitively vulnerable patients would develop delirium regardless of which group they were in. Similarly, the amount of time that patients spent in birth suppression in both the study and control group was beyond the threshold that has been previously found to be associated with an increased risk of delirium. Further research is required in determining the role of depth of anesthesia and EEG monitoring in cognitive outcomes. The authors then briefly review the evidence for other interventions which may be beneficial in reducing the risk of post-operative delirium and cognitive dysfunction. Dexmedetomidine has been shown to reduce delirium when used for sedation compared to midazolam in critically ill patients and improve the survival rate in cardiac surgery patients. It has also been shown to reduce early post-operative cognitive dysfunction in liver transplant patients and improve cognitive function in elderly surgical patients in general. Finally, administration of statins during hospitalization for ischemic stroke and intracerebral hemorrhage was associated with improved functional outcomes in a few studies. Early mobilization and exercise in the perioperative period may also improve postoperative cognitive outcomes in vulnerable patients. To conclude this review, Drs. Cottrell and Hartung suggest that, given the currently available data, clinicians should add anesthesia to surgical intervention on the cost side of the cost-benefit ratio when deciding whether and when to proceed with surgery. They also recommend that efforts should be made to minimize the depth and duration of general anesthesia or sedation and to choose regional techniques whenever possible. The gaps in our understanding of anesthesia and cognitive outcomes in elderly patients should inspire more and more research in this field in the hopes of better determining the safety profiles of various anesthetic drugs and identifying mechanisms for brain protection in this vulnerable population. This ends the podcast for the Journal of Neurosurgical Anesthesiology. On behalf of the Training Engagement Committee, 
Thank you for listening.